Hey everyone, welcome to the debut episode of Today's High Score. This is a, a different kind of show. This show is driven by you, the viewer, the watcher, the sifters. Um, how it's going to work is I'm going to introduce some topics. Um, going to talk about them for a little bit. I'm going to kind of explain what the big story is with each one, and then you guys are going to call in via Skype. And so right now you should add us as a contact. Our contact is Sifted Games, all one word, S-I-F-T-D-G-A-M-E-S. And that will be your gateway to get in on the show and talk with us. So a couple things. First of all, sorry for starting the show late. The technical hurdles involved with this show have been insane. I've been dealing with Skype like all day today, uh, trying to get it nailed down. Um, I think we've got it good now. Uh, obviously, this is the first time we're doing the show. There's going to be some issues here and there. Um, so don't be surprised if graphics show up when they're not supposed to, blah, blah, blah. It's going to take a couple episodes to get everything smoothed out. But I'm really excited about this show. I'm really excited to get you guys involved with our content. It's something I've been trying to do for a really long time on Sifted in a number of ways. Um, but I think this is going to be the best way. A uh, couple things. One, don't be shy. Um, we would prefer if you could send your video along with your Skype call. If you don't, that's okay. Uh, we have a graphic set up so we can work with you if you're just coming in through sound. But we'd love to get your, uh, your video as well. Uh, number two, I'm sure a lot of you guys are thinking, oh, I'm going to be a prankster. Uh, I'm going to call and crank call or whatever. Um, just know that this is being recorded. It's not being archived on Twitch. And this will be edited before it's ever published. So if you act like an idiot, you're not going to make it into the show. Uh, no one's going to ever know that you did it. So let's be respectful. Uh, let's have good conversations about games. Um, I'll probably take one or two calls per topic um, unless somebody just absolutely nails it with one call. And then we'll move on to the next one. I have about six or seven topics to talk about today. Um, I'm really conscious about not cannibalizing game face. So a lot of the topics we're going to talk about on today's high score are topics that we probably wouldn't cover on GF. Um, I wouldn't say they're not important, but they're smaller things that really wouldn't sort of generate a really long discussion um, around them on Game Face, but we can talk about them here and uh, have some conversations between us. So I'm really excited about this. Um, the first conversation we're going to talk about on the very first episode of today's high score is the ESA. So. The ESA. A lot of people look at the ESA as the gamer's friend, but I think what a lot of people forget about the ESA is that they're not actually working for us. They work for video game publishers. Uh, you've probably seen some stories on Sifted over the last six or eight months uh, where the ESA kind of steps in and does lobbying on behalf of the video game industry at Congress and things like that. And truth be told, in some ways they are the gamer's voice. Um, because not all the time, but sometimes they will go to Congress and they will actually fight for things that we do care about and we do want changed about the gaming industry or the laws around the gaming industry. Um, but that that's not always the case. And this particular week, that has not been the case, in fact. The, uh, the ESA this week has shot down once again um, gamers' pleas and plight to try to find some way to archive video games that have now died but were reliant upon online 
functionality in order to work. And so what's happening is a lot of communities are springing up around games like the original EverQuest, and they're trying to make sure that uh, that people can continue to play EverQuest even though the publisher has decided it's no longer worth supporting. And um, essentially what they're trying to do is preserve games. Um, when you start talking about the history of video games and uh, what's going to be there in 50 or 60 years, uh, will someone be able to talk about EverQuest in 30 years and be able to show people what EverQuest was and show gameplay footage of EverQuest? Um, right now that kind of stuff is up in the air. And so there are people who are fighting for the ability to preserve video game history in a lot of ways. And the ESA has kind of pushed back on that from every turn. Um, the ESA's basic argument is that uh, with the proliferation of remasters, that the publishers are doing a good job all on their own of uh, trying to preserve their games. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't remember too many online-based games that have seen remasters. Um, we're going to talk about a game a little bit later in the show that's kind of like that, um, but it's not a game that's especially old. It's a game that's just a couple few years, few years old. And so maybe that's the case for modern games, um, games that we're playing right now. But when you talk about games that we played 10, 15, 20 years ago that are online, we're not really kind of seeing um, those games be remastered and be available for play or for archival purposes. So in the, uh, in the case of being fair, I do want to kind of share with you the official stance by the ESA. Um, and we do want to make sure that the show... Um, touches on both sides of issues and that we're not just kind of gamers piling on to whatever issue is the most popular. This isn't a, this isn't an aggregation of Twitterverse. This isn't us going out and trying to figure out what all gamers agree on and then sitting here and saying, yeah, they're right. We want to really examine both sides. So I want to share what the ESA's perspective is on this issue. And this is a direct quote from the ESA. Uh, the prevalence of reissues of older games belies any claim that game companies lack incentive to, pre to preserve older titles. And that's what I was just discussing. Although the proponents purport to seek the broadened exemption for the purpose of preservation, proponents appear to view recreational gameplay as within the ambit of preservation. Only multiplayer gameplay is not necessary. Online multiplayer gameplay is not necessary for preservation or for subsequent scholarly purposes. So that's the EASA stance. They're saying that online play is irrelevant to preserving the industry's history. Um, and I couldn't disagree with that more. And I believe as time goes on and with all these always connected games, in fact, just today Metal Gear Survive or yesterday Metal Gear Survive was released, that's only playable online. Um, so DSA is saying that any multi multiplayer online focused game doesn't need to be preserved. And I think that that's insane. And I think that's only going to become more insane as time goes on. Um, so my question to you is, and I want you guys to call in and give us your take on this. What's the answer here? Um, the ESA is working on behalf of the publishers. And I'm assuming the publishers have spoken with the ESA um, and said to them, and the publishers have said to them, hey, we, we don't want this. We don't want our games being pirated because the problem is that there are some services popping up out there that will charge you 
$10 a month to play old games online like EverQuest. And look, I'm not arguing that that should be allowed. That should be absolutely illegal. No one should be able to make money off of these old games. But I think in the preservation respect, um, there should be some kind of caveats or exceptions made um, just to preserve the history of the industry so people can look back and see how evolution happened and how things changed. Um, so give us a call right now at Sifted Games on Skype and uh, we'll get the first caller into the show. Um, and look, I don't want to make it seem like the ESA is a bunch of bad guys. They do do good things for the industry. They fight for legislation. Um, they went and they've been proactive dealing with Congress in the United States to uh, make sure that they were instituting a ratings board before gaming was censored. Um, so the ESA does a lot of good. And I don't want you to think that I'm saying that the ESA is worthless for people like us, for people who actually buy and play games. Um, but the ESA most certainly, uh, I would say, has stepped out of bounds in a few cases and has not exactly represented the best interests of gamers first. So let's get a call in here. Let's see if somebody will call in. Hi, can you hear me? I can hear you, Tom. Welcome to the show. This is Tom Duvac. What's going on? Um, I think it's kind of BS on what the ESA is doing. And frankly, I think there's a bit of a middle ground, honestly, for this issue as well. I mean... I'm kind of having a bit of a hard time uh, articulating my response completely. Just um, Tom, what do you think really the middle ground of, like, is? Right off the top of my head. What do you think that middle ground could be? The middle ground would be that I'm thinking like um, older online games, like think uh, Fantasy Star Online. Like you could have. Like you can have like small because I know there's like smaller groups like the Electronic Frontier Foundation trying to um, get old servers of that game up, and they're currently fighting the ESA. What I think you could get is that you could have a larger pu larger publisher essentially accept like licensing payments from this smaller group to keep this game online for historical preservation purposes. So in that case, do you think there needs to be some kind of a service where you actually pay to play the older games? How much would you be willing to pay each month for a service that gave you, say, 100 old online games that you could play? That is an interesting question. I, I hadn't really thought of it fully. Um, I think you would need, like, uh, I think that would... Probably a fee you would have to work out in between, like, the group and the rights holder. So you're saying pay the group who decides to create the service, pays the publishers X amount of dollars per year, and then the users can play the games for free? Possibly. Possibly. Okay. Well, that's one idea. Tom, thank you for your call. We appreciate it. So there we go. Tom Duvac. Thank you, brother. 
you were the first brave soul to come on the show, and hopefully that broke the ice a little bit. We are, it does appear to be that he was on a really nasty delay. Um, I should have said before the first call, you have to make sure that you turn down, you're either wearing headphones or you're turning down the audio on your computer speakers, because otherwise we'll get a wicked echo uh, through the show. So make sure you turn down your speakers or you have headphones on before you call. So Tom proposed that the publishers somehow work out some kind of a licensing deal with the any service that would want to prop up to preserve these old online games. How much would you pay for a service that would give you vanilla World of Warcraft and the original EverQuest and a lot of the original online RPGs as one package? Um, how much would you be willing to pay for that? I mean, I think I would probably... 10 bucks a month maybe might be... A good option. I mean, you look at what you're getting with services like Xbox Game Pass or PlayStation Now. Um, those are generally around $10 a month, and uh, you're getting a lot of games from those. So um, I think that's a pretty good proposal from Tom there, actually, that uh, maybe somehow there could be some kind of a, an organizing body uh, that gets the publishers together and the services together that want to provide these old games to folks and uh, see if they can work something out. Um, again, I don't want it to seem like I'm totally bagging on the ESA. I appreciate a lot of what the ESA does. Um, but I feel in this case, they're being overprotective. I think the publishers are being overprotective when the vast majority of people who are involved with this are just trying to preserve their games so that they don't just go off into the ether forever. So that's my final take. Next, we're going to move on to a story that came out a couple days ago about how Doom for the Switch just added motion gyro controls. Um, by now you guys have all had the Switch for a while, at least a lot of you have, or you had a Wii U, or you had a Wii even, and you kind of understand how motion controls work. Um, my question to you guys is, do you enjoy the gyro controls on Switch? Um, I'll start. Um, some games I like it, and some games I don't. And some games I've been surprised that I didn't even realize I was using them for a while. And so in that case, sometimes they're pretty stinking intuitive. Star Fox, for, for uh, the Star Fox that came from Platinum Games, like I didn't even realize I was using the gyro controls to shoot in that game. Um, until one, I think some instance happened where the cursor just jerked, and then I realized that I had brought it back to center using the motion controls. Um, and so that was one, uh, but a lot of games are almost forced to use it on Nintendo platforms. I feel like Nintendo maybe has a mandate and I, I obviously doom is, is an example of, uh, of the publisher not having that ready at launch and releasing it later. So obviously it's not a requirement from Nintendo that every game must launch with gyro controls. Um, but I think um, I think it's good to have the option there, but it's not something that I want to use. I prefer to use sticks. For instance, Splatoon 2. I'm finally learning how to say Splatoon correctly, by the way. Uh, Splatoon 2 uh, was a game that had the gyro controls on by default, and I found that playing online, they weren't quick enough or responsive enough, and I just ended up switching them off and going to sticks. So 
what say you? What do you guys think about motion controls? Are motion controls something that's from the days of yesterday, from the Wii era, and you wish they wouldn't, they'd never come back again? Or do you feel still feel like there's something that can create emergent gameplay? Uh, something that can still create games that are different from anything else on the market. Get your calls in at Sifted Games on Skype. I absolutely can hear you. You're live on THS. What's your take on motion controls? Okay. Um, I think... Okay. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. It's very delayed. More delayed because I can see you live on Skype and then I'm obviously watching the stream. So, basically, I think that motion controls... Well, I think depending on the game. So for Doom, for instance, a pretty fast-paced game. So if you haven't got that reliability with the technology, it could definitely hamper your gameplay. However, because it's mostly a single-player game, it might not be as um, might not be as difficult because you're not relying on that multiplayer instance. However, I think that. Um, like with other games, so I think I honestly think Nintendo are obviously trying to still do it gimmick-wise, and I don't feel like the technology is there really to have it at the pace you need it to be at. And also that, so for instance, when VR hopefully becomes more of a bigger thing, you're going to probably require that technology to be a bit more high-end. So I think maybe in five, ten years it will be at the level it needs to be, but at the moment I still think it's quite gimmicky and I don't think it's as useful as it is as a controller currently in the gaming scenario. So he brings up a great point, which is the VR. Um, motion controls are essential for VR. There's no doubt about it. And I feel I agree with him. I think that as time goes on, that's where you're going to see motion controls kind of move into the next generation and take over. I think after you've tried Oculus Touch it's hard to go back to a Wii remote or even a Joy-Con is as technologically advanced as the Joy-Con Joy is. It's kind of hard to go back to that after you've used an Oculus Touch controller or the Vive controllers. And I think that's kind of where motion controls are being pushed for innovation. And I also agree that the big issue with motion controls is fast-paced games, fast-paced shooters. Like I was talking about Splatoon 2, about how I started playing with motion controls and the gyro controls, and eventually it became too much. Um, and what they weren't accurate enough, they weren't quick enough for me to play effectively in the game, and I absolutely agree. I think that's kind of the sticking point for motion controls. I don't feel like they're ever going to be a part of competitive gaming, but I do think that they add a great deal to immersion um, and the feel that you get from games, no pun intended, uh, when you actually play them. So, anything else that you want to add before we uh, move on to another caller? Um, just that, I, as I, I haven't actually had a chance to try the Oculus or the Rift um, or the um, um, Vive, so I wouldn't know. But yeah, as I said, I, th I completely agree with you, and I just think that um, until we, well, Nintendo get there, I don't know if they will because of the market they're trying to address. Um, we're always going to have that gap. Love it. All right. Thank you for your call. Appreciate it. Great conversation. Can you hear me? I absolutely can hear you, Vincent. Welcome. I cannot hear you through Skype, so that's probably why there's so much delay. You're right. But welcome. What's your take on motion controls? 
I love motion. In fact, it got me to go and go play more Doom. As soon as I saw the story and curated it last night, I actively went to go try it. And, and it works It works well because it trying to... Let's see. Yeah, because... I even tried a bit of the multiplayer, which surprised me, because uh, I I never really played FPSs or any first-person games on console, just a bit on the PC, so instead I just worked on trying to get things, uh, what am I trying to say, just, it feels more like a mouse when I'm doing it that way, so instead I, it made it more fun. So what you're saying is um, you prefer fun over being competitive. Is that accurate? In a lot of ways. It, it feels more accurate. Like, one of the notable things with Doom in particular is that they actually turn off auto-aim when you're playing with the motion controls. Oh, and I just heard you through Skype, so you must have fixed something there. I did. I just fixed the mic, so we should be good to go. That's good. So I also don't have to hear myself, which is nice. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so you're saying for you, it's, I don't know, fun over function, I guess. It functions well, too. It's it's more than, I, I think it's mostly that I'm just not used to playing uh, FPS or anything like that with the, with the sticks instead of a mouse. And motion works closer to a mouse than the sticks. Do you think that you can be as good playing with motion controls, though? Mm. I mean, you certainly can be. Like, I know all the people who play Splatoon at the top level, they almost exclusively use motion. Though that might just be because it's, that's what they're used to and what Nintendo pushed. And that's a, obviously a different type of game than, say, uh, Doom. So do you think Nintendo was smart for continuing its push with uh, motion controls for the Switch? Yeah, as long as it's always an option. It's one of the things that differentiates the Switch from other from other platforms. Though I think other platforms, like, does the, P does the DualShock 4 have motion in it? It does. Or actually, I don't know. That's I remember the question. PS3 one did, but then everyone stopped after Lair kind of crashed and burned it out of the gate. Right. Yeah, everyone kind of bailed after that. Oh, wait, I think it has to because you can use a DualShock 4 with the PSVR, and that does stuff. Though that might be with a camera, so I'm not sure. Oh, you're absolutely right. DualShock 4 does have motion controls, and you're right. It's mostly used for PlayStation VR. Yep. That's why there is the light on the front, so the uh, PlayStation camera can pick up the blue light on the front of the camera. Mm hmm But developers don't really use the motion controls on PS4 at all. Why do you think that is? So to kind of, it's kind of a counterpoint to what you were talking about. If motion controls are so great, why aren't more developers making use of them when they're an option? I'm not sure. Maybe it's because they want it to be equal between PS4 and Xbox. I'm pretty sure the Xbox controller doesn't have the motion in it. Yeah, it doesn't. There's no motion controls in uh, Xbox One at all. And a lot of that was because they were relying on 
the Kinect camera to handle a lot of that. Yeah. All right, Vincent. Thanks for calling in, man. Lots of insight there. Mm -hmm. We'll give you a uh, we'll give you an MGS alert for your call. <laughs> Thanks, man. You too. So there you go. That's Vincent. Vincent is one of the curators on Sifted. He does an amazing job. Um, basically, I get up in the morning and do a couple hours of curation. And then he's the guy that kind of checks in throughout the day and uh, curates stuff that comes in throughout the day. So we do have the Skype mic figured out. So conversation should be better. Like I said, first episode, learning experience. We'll get better at this as we do more episodes. And when we edit this together, we'll obviously cut out the dead time and all that sort of thing. But I think we got it all dialed in now. And uh, maybe we're going to hit our stride with uh, today's high score right here. So let's move on to the next topic. The next topic I want to talk about is games for gold and free games with PlayStation Plus. So it seems like every time new games with gold or PlayStation Plus games are announced now, or at least these days, people groan. And they tend to say, oh, well, I already have that, or that game's not worth anything anyway. They might as well give it away. Um, and uh, just this week, the brand new games for gold were announced for March for 2018. Uh, Super Hot and uh, Trails of the Blood Dragon were really the two big games, and you're seeing those right now. Um, Super Hot, obviously, is a crazy stop-action shooter uh, that eventually was published for VR. And uh, Trails of the Blood Dragon is uh, Ubisoft's Trials mixed with the Far Cry expansion that everybody loves a lot. And uh, Super Hot, it's a really short game. I think I finished it in like two hours. Trials is one of those things where either you love it or you hate it. When we were at GT, uh, people there absolutely loved, loved Trials. In fact, during lunchtime, everybody would go back into the capture area and they'd all sit there and take turns playing and, in all honesty, fighting over the controller to get the next, the next chance at it. So... Um, it was a big game at GT. I realize it's not everybody's cup of tea. So I guess the question becomes, and the question I want to ask you guys, and you should chime in on, is do these free games actually influence you to subscribe to these services anymore? Um, it seems like as time has gone on, free games on PlayStation Plus and Xbox Live have just kind of become more and more obscure, obscure or they're just indie games. And... Um, Look, I get the perspective of a lot of people. They're like, well, you know, I probably wouldn't pay for an indie game in the first place, but if I get it for free, I might play it. Um, but it seems like every month, no matter what games are announced for these services or or how many there are, people are still complaining about getting free stuff, and I find it a little weird. So I'm hoping to get your perspective. So give us a call at Sifted Games. Here comes Mitchell Ness. Let's get him in. Hey, Mitchell. Make sure hey, you turn up? down the volume. There we go. Okay, so the the Games with Gold and the PlayStation Plus subscription services we're talking about today? Yeah. Um, personally, I don't really... I mean, in the past, it's been kind of a, a wonderful thing. Like, there's games I would normally... I've never tried in the past, like the Injustice series. I don't really give you know, two craps about fighting games in general. I would never play one just on a free whim. 
So that actually got me kind of in the, the rhythm to actually go out and do something like that. Um, as of lately, you know, every once in a while, like, I'm excited for Trials to, to show up. I um, was kind of excited for them to kind of do something with the Blood Dragon series from Far Cry. So it's kind of cool that, you know, that experiment finally became free to people so we could try it out. Like, I've been a fan of that before, and I never got a chance to try it, so... There's at least something there, but it's not so much as a community poll as it used to be, I feel. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's the law of diminishing returns in that every month you have to offer something for free and eventually you're just going to run out of options for the games that you can give away? I, I don't think it's so much that. I just feel like... Um... Xbox and PlayStation might already have some other spinning plates going on right now. Say the Xbox Game Pass, they've kind of prioritized that as kind of their their go-to source of, of you know, subscription-based game service. And then PlayStation, uh, they, they do indie stuff. So there's something different going on. I feel like both hats have different things happening, but... Xbox, I feel like they've just kind of went more towards the obscure lately and kind of half-assed for the last six months or so. Like, I'm very excited to play Brave, I guess. But, um, <laughs> the Disney game. <laughs> is that Disney I'm just, or is yeah, that DreamWorks? Big, big Brave fan. So, oh, okay. You know. <laughs> and you wouldn't have bought that um, on your own? Or you didn't no, buy it on your no own? Way. <laughs> I, so you I don't like Brave that much. <laughs> No, I that was a bit of sarcasm there. I um, I'm not a big um, I don't I don't know it, already owned IP video games. I'm not too keen on, but um, I don't know the the way that Games with Gold has been set up for the past couple couple months has really been diminishing, like you're saying, and um, I just really think Microsoft's really kind of gearing more towards their Game Pass and trying to bring that in. Um, not so much on the PlayStation side. I feel like they have delivered at least something that sparks the community to go out and if they already have something, something that brings more people to that table to um, incentivize people to get back on the servers and play those games. So if anything, these um, these free games that we get with their subscription services should be more multiplayer-centric, I think, ultimately. Do you think people just don't like indie games? Because let's be honest, the majority of games that are free on these services are indie games. Usually you get the the one token AAA game each month, and yeah. then you get like four or five indie games. I mean, are we really just seeing why indie games are indie games? You know... Um... Continually, every single year, we still see Madden and the Call of Duties be the number one selling games every single year. So I think it's pretty easy to point the finger saying that, you know, an indie game, the indie games are the issue with it. But when you look at a game like Rocket League, which is an indie game that was free with PlayStation Plus, completely lit the world on fire when it was a PlayStation Plus game. So I don't Rise necessarily think it's another one. Yeah. Yeah, Resogun, uh, once again, also did that. The My friends, when PlayStation 4 came out, just we were continually trying to topple each other on the leaderboards, and then Rocket League still has a huge mainstay in the PlayStation community, along with 
you know, the Xbox One as well. So I don't think it necessarily is the indie game problem. I think it's just, I think there needs to be a community behind a subscription service that you're paying to actually play multiplayer games. You should probably get some multiplayer games to actually be backing up that subscription service. Do you think they're think afraid, where... though, to give multiplayer games? Because people will play them for a long time and won't buy any games. That's true. <laughs> I feel... And I think maybe developers are a little bit afraid of that because yeah. I bet you um, the Rocket League developers, I forget their name, but they, they definitely lost money. Psionics, yeah. I um, I 100% think they lost money on that deal. I think it depends um, on your business model, They did model, get though. the exposure. So they, I don't think they would have became what they are today if they didn't get that deal going on. But if they would have gone a groundswell that would have reached that critical mass, they would have had a, um, some crazy profits, that's for sure. Doesn't kind of depend on your uh, business model, though? Because if you're a multiplayer game that relies on microtransactions... Wouldn't it be good to kind of get a million new players in that might be buying hats or guns or whatever, skins, those type of things? I 100% think that would be that would be the easiest way to get in. Like, say, over like Overwatch, for instance, they make more money on the freaking loot boxes than they actually do selling the $60 game out of yeah, the box. If, absolutely. Um, pretty much if anyone... Like once Overwatch, they've already bought it, and then the people that are kind of on the fence about it, if that was say something on there. Granted, now we're getting back over to the AAA scene, but yeah. you know there are tons and tons of indie games that propose that business model too. Um, I don't know; it'd be a tough call on that kind of thing. But I definitely think yes, you shoot your community a little bit in the foot when you are proposing other games because everyone is playing those games and it's taken away from overall game sales. But if you're in a, per, a position like Microsoft where you're trying to just hold on to your market to to cater to your fans so when you come into the next generation swinging, they'll be all along for the ride, this would be the time to do something like that for them. Right on. Great call, Mitchell. Good job, man. We're going to give you a Hadouken. Hadouken! <laughs> Thanks, man. Great call. Yep. Sweet. Bye. So there you go, Mitchell Nest, with a great call. Any of you other, uh, any of the other viewers have any takes on uh, free games with gold or the PlayStation free games? Give us a ring. Um, you may wonder why I'm talking a little slowly, and that's because what I am hearing is myself completely delayed. So here's here's Joey Apps. Let's give him another try. He called in earlier, and we had uh, some technical issues. Joey, can you hear us now? Hello. There you are. There we go. We're back in business. We're yep. in business. We got you. What's your take on this, Excellent. Joey? Do you care um, about these free games? To, to a certain extent, I mean, it, what it boils down to for me is I never have subscribed to PlayStation Plus or Games with Gold because of the games. It's because I've been strong-armed into doing this to play multiplayer. Um, they're a nice bonus for me, um, and I do try and play the games where I can. But what I've found, it, it has a negative impact on the way that I purchase games. Like I will earmark a game like Rhyme, for example, and think, if I wait six months... 
it will come to PlayStation now. It will come to Games with Gold. And it has. Rhyme has come to PlayStation in the last month or so. So I haven't gone out and supported the developer because I knew that I could get it for, you know, as part of my uh, subscription model. So it, it has put me off buying certain games at launch or, or closely after launch because I think, you know, later on down the line, it's going to appear in my, in my subscription. I'm going to get a chance to play it without, you know, having any financial outlay. I think that's a great point. I think you're right. I think a lot of times people look at indie games and they're like, why would I buy this? Because I'm probably going to get it for free in a couple months. And uh, yeah. I saw people on the site who were saying exactly that. They're like, this game looks cool. It was actually one of the last game evals that we did on the site before we switched over to Patreon. And people were like, it looks cool, but I'm probably going to get this for free in two or three months. And sure enough... There it is. Yep. Um, and I, I like that we got your perspective because you're one of the few people who do not subscribe to Xbox Live or PlayStation Network. And so are you saying that these free games are no incentive for you whatsoever to eventually sign up? I, I, I do subscribe, sorry. I, oh, you do? I only subscribe for the multi I only subscribe for the multiplayer stuff. Oh, okay. So the actual gotcha. games are kind of like added value added value, I guess, and um I never kind of consider them free games because I feel like I'm paying for them. But you are you know in if, a roundabout way. If the, yeah. If, yeah. If the multiplayer, you know, dangling carrot wasn't there and I wasn't able to if I was able to be able to play for free, then I I'm not sure I would subscribe. I'll be one of those people that subscribes when a game comes on for a month jump straight off which is what i'll probably do with xbox game pass and that sort so when sea of thieves drops that's something i'll definitely will be trying out on that service and i feel like for the for, the, for both of these you know monthly subscriptions that we pay you know sony and microsoft should look at perhaps discounting things like game pass for gold members give us a couple of bucks off or a couple of pounds off in in, in my part of the world and and that would to me feel like more value than some of the the monthly games but um it's, it's handy for, for me as well because I, I trade games. So Metal Gear Solid 5 is something I traded. I now have that to access if I want to go back and play that or something I did want to do. So there's, there's definitely you know some benefits to it. But um, all in all, I, I, I've never really kind of looked at the games and thought, you know, that's the reason why I'm subscribing. I'm only subscribing because they're forcing me to pay for multiplayer stuff, which, you know, isn't really cool when you think about it that way. Great call. Great perspective, too. So thank you for calling in, man. We, we already gave you an MGS sound effect because you dropped uh, Metal Gear Solid there. So <laughs> I love Metal Gear Solid, so that's that's the perfect sound effect. Just so you know, it's uh, my name's Otaps. I'm from the site. It's obviously with Skype. It's a different username, so good to finally speak to you. I think what's great is we're getting to meet the faces of sifters here. Like a lot of people that you may have conversed with on the site for the last three years, you're suddenly putting uh, a face with the name so otaps you're a great member of sifted man thank you for all your support you. and for being an active part of the community great call man thank you thank you for, for making the site and, and continue to support it cheers guys great discussion there really really enjoyed that um all right let's move on to the next topic So I've talked to you guys about this before, about our trials and travails with YouTube. Um, first of all, YouTube is a huge time sink. So we get a lot of people asking us lately why we haven't been putting up Game Face on YouTube. Um, there's a number of reasons. I guess I'll address that right now before we kind of get into the bigger, meatier part of the discussion. Um, 
everything is one-to-one with YouTube. It takes forever to upload something to YouTube. And the way YouTube works is um, you cannot... You cannot upload two versions of the same video. So Game Face is three hours long, as you guys know, every week. Um, and essentially, when we upload the file again for public, it has to be a different file. So we have to render it again or compress it again so that it's not the exact same file size. Because if it is, YouTube will reject it. So to post something on YouTube that will run ads and will actually generate some revenue for us, we have to go through a crazy process. So essentially, we've been prioritizing creating new content like this show. I've been working on this show for like two weeks now. Uh, we've been prioritizing creating new content for our patrons and our subscribers instead of putting Game Face up on YouTube. Um, and I'm sure you guys have heard over the last couple of months, a lot of YouTubers have been complaining about demonetization. We have had that experience. We've had a lot of that experience, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, stuff just gets randomly demonetized based, I think, just on the title or what games are tagged to that piece of content. So what it ends up doing is you end up trying to jimmy the system. So if I know there's an M-rated game in a show, I just won't add that tag on YouTube. And sometimes that gets around it. Sometimes there's no rhyme or reason to it at all. Um, for instance, we posted our play view for Sea of Thieves on YouTube. And it's Sea of Thieves, people. I don't think there's a drop of blood in the entire game. Um, there's no swearing, there's no cursing. Um, and that went up at first and it was monetized and within 10 minutes it was demonetized. And once something is demonetized, one, you have to know that it's been demonetized because you don't get an email or an alert from YouTube saying, hey, you're not making money off of this. You have to go in and look at your videos on YouTube and look to for this little dinky icon that'll tell you it's been demonetized. And once you figure out it's been demonetized, there is sort of a an ability there to dispute it. Um, there's a dispute process, so to speak. And you click a link and say, I dispute this, and then confirm that you dispute it, which is all well and good. The problem is the way stuff works on YouTube is you publish a video and an alert goes out to all your subscribers to watch it. And so just the way the service is set up, it's set up so that you make all your money off of a video in like two days. I mean, that's really how it works. Um, even Pactor Factor, which is the most popular show on our YouTube channel. Within two days, no one's watching the new Pactor Factor anymore. And because the process of disputing a demonetization takes so long, you, by the time they get back to you and they say, oh, you're right, this video is fine, you've lost all the money because the time that people were going to watch it, they there were not ads being served on that video on YouTube. So. I, I don't make my living completely off of YouTube. It's an alternate revenue stream for Sifted. So we do make a little bit of money off of it, but it is really, really minuscule. For those of you who may not know, you essentially need to serve a million videos with ads to make $1,000 on YouTube. So a lot of people, like we get all kinds of messages from people on YouTube that are complaining that uh, we're asking for people to contribute to our Patreon. They're like, hey, I'm watching an ad on this on YouTube. And I think those people don't realize how impossible it is to make money off ad revenue on YouTube. Um, it's really, really hard. I mean, again, a million views with ads served to make $1,000. So what's, what's happened with YouTube over the last few weeks is YouTube is about to change its policies again. And it's not just about the demonetization stuff that I spoke about. YouTube is changing its policies as far as what channels can make money at all. It used to be the way it would work is 
once you serve 10,000 views of any video, then you're in the club. Um, once you, once 10,000 people watched any of your videos, you are able to set it up and start serving ads on your videos and start generating revenue from YouTube. That is not the case anymore. YouTube has bumped up the requirements to start making money. Um, they're not that much more intense. And to be perfectly honest with you, I kind of get why YouTube is doing it because what's happened is, um, and, and this is just from my own personal experience, um, a lot of times after I finish working late at night, I'll go out to the living room and I'll fire up YouTube on my TV through my PS4 or my Xbox or whatever. Um, and I'll start looking at videos. And a lot of times I'll find the monologues for Jimmy Kimmel or whatever talk show was on that night. And instead of having to watch the whole show, they'll just have the monologue there, the opening stand-up comedy routine essentially for that show. And if you watch any of those, they're not the official NBC, CBS, or Fox channels that have those. These are people who are capturing the monologue, uploading it to their YouTube channel, and getting the views from it. And I'm guilty of it. I click and I watch those. Um, and what it, how it used to work was, once those people got 10,000 views, which if you have the new monologue for Jimmy Kimmel from that night, you're going to get 10,000 views like that. So they were getting those 10,000 views and then immediately monetizing those. And before NBC or Fox or CBS could go and issue takedown notices, that account's already generated a ton of revenue off of that. So I understand why YouTube is doing it. Look, I have been... <laughs> I wouldn't say I hate YouTube, but I would say, you know, it, it has affected me personally in the past with how we were forced to deal with YouTube when I was at GT and Viacom. The fact that we weren't allowed to use YouTube at Viacom because Viacom was suing them. The fact that YouTube built its business off other people's content bothers me. Um, it's like, it's all good now. We're following the rules now. But yeah, you created a billion dollar business off of the backs of others. It happened to us at GT. We weren't allowed to put our stuff on YouTube. Other people were stealing our content and putting it on YouTube. And we go and we'd find like one of our GT countdowns would have like 10 million views from some kid or whatever. So um, I'm not the biggest fan of YouTube, but I do think in this case, YouTube is actually doing things the right way. And so I guess my question to you, I know for a fact that there are a lot of sifters who have started their own YouTube channels. In fact, you may have seen this week um, that one of our patrons slash subscribers who won our loot box giveaway as a Patreon reward this month, he filmed an unboxing video of him getting his loot box from us. Um, and that was great. Um, but I know a lot of you guys are trying to start your own YouTube channels or have already started a YouTube channel and you're trying to gain that audience. And I'm really interested to hear from you guys because you're the ones who are actually in this boat. We're kind of grandfathered in. We have 15,000 subscribers or whatever. Like we're good. Uh, it's not a problem that we're going to have to deal with, but I do care about you folks, and I do care about you guys kind of creating your own content and getting involved on YouTube. So I'm interested to hear uh, your perspective on this. Again, just call us at Sifted Games on Skype, and we'll get you into the show. Um, while I wait for a call to come in for this, I, I do want to talk a little bit more about how we're handling YouTube as Sifted. Um, we're not making the most of it. I totally get that. But unfortunately, we don't have people to do that stuff. And it's always a question of this or that. It's never, why can't we do both? It's we have to make decisions. So you may have noticed in the last couple of days, we put up a play view, our old play view for Metal Gear Survive on the day it came out. Um, and that's what we try to do. We create play views and then we try to upload them to our YouTube channel on the day or close to the day when the game actually comes out when there's a lot of interest built around them. Um, 
So that's kind of been our strategy. And I realize Game Face probably would generate more inquiries from YouTubers. It's the content that tends to do a little better there. Although I would argue our play view should be doing far better there than they are. Um, people just flat out just don't seem to give content a chance unless it's immediately recognizable what it is. That seems to be a, a big detriment of using YouTube. Um, so we're doing the best we can with our YouTube channel, I guess is the best way we can put it. The resources that we have, the people that we have, uh, we're trying to do the best that we can to make sure also that we don't lose patrons. That has been a big problem. We've lost $1,000 on our Patreon since the month it launched. And I think a big part of that is that people just didn't feel like we were giving them enough content. So you straddle that line there. It's like, do we spend four or five hours posting game face on YouTube, or do we spend that four or five hours creating content for our existing customers so that they don't drop and we don't lose that revenue stream? It, there's no easy answer to it, but I just want to let you kind of in on the inside of what our strategy is behind uh, our YouTube activity. So it doesn't look like this is generating any discussions. We're not getting any calls about YouTube. I'm surprised because I know a lot of you guys are either on Twitch or you're on YouTube trying to kind of do your own thing. And we're all about supporting you guys. As you guys know, we have a channel on Sifted for Sifted Community. So if you guys are doing good stuff out there, just alert us to it and we'll make sure that we promote it on Sifted, provided it's not total bottom of the barrel. We're pretty liberal with what we'll show. And here we, Joey Apps is calling in again. Um, you know what, if no one else will call, let's talk to him again. What's up, Joey? Thanks for for pitching in, man. These other people, they're, they're too nervous. I don't know if they don't have a take or I don't know what it is. That's all right. It's, uh, I didn't, to be honest, I didn't have much of a take on the first topics. I think it will, you know, the topics will generate, um, you know, different different conversations. Um, I, I do have a, a YouTube channel. Um, it's under the name of Dim Digital and it's a group of friends of us that, you know, we, we play video games, we offer our opinions, talk about it, do a bit of movies here and there. Um, one thing that I've, I've noticed and this is something that might happen for for people that are that are struggling or looking to generate more money, is we started streaming um, probably properly, not even properly. We're talking twice a week tops um, about three or four weeks ago, um, and already have, have qualified to become an affiliate, which allows people to sub to your channel and allow you to generate income um, that way. Now I'm under no illusions that we'll do that for a long, long time, um, but the fact was that we only need 50 followers on there. Um, and free concurrent users once in the last 30 days, which is an extremely low barrier. And if you talk about some of the changes that YouTube have made, that barrier is obviously much, much higher. I can see people potentially going down the Twitch route because with vodcast and video on demand service they're offering, you could potentially, we could potentially start uploading our stuff on there premiere it onto the Twitch channel, get engaged with the chat whilst it's playing, and then almost do a stream afterwards and discuss it with the people that have perhaps tuned in and watched. And, you know, I think YouTube in general, they're always going to keep the big fish. But for, for guys like me that are probably doing it more as a hobby than anything, and if we get a few beers out of it at the end, we'll be happy. We're more likely at this rate to make money by continuing with Twitch and pushing our content to there rather than, you know, uploading it to YouTube as well. Well, I'll be perfectly honest with you. We... In the last few months, we've made way more money off of Twitch than we have off of YouTube. Yeah. And it's not from ad revenue. It's simply the Twitch Prime program. Um, yeah. It's kind of been building for the last couple months where, like, the first month we made, like, 100 bucks or whatever. I was like, that's cool. I mean, you know, that pays for something. It pays for a game that we yeah. can cover or whatever that a publisher won't send us. Um, and then the next month it was, like, 150 And then 
then this past month we got like 175 and so i was like hey we need to promote this like this is such an easy way mm -hmm. to drive revenue it's like i know a lot of people can't afford to support us financially or whatever maybe they just choose not to um but i think no matter what they would like to help and so we decided to just promote it and be like hey give us two dollars and fifty cents and now we're making a I gotta say, like since we put that up yesterday, we're we've like doubled our highest ever amount that we've made off of Twitch, and so we're like making way more money off of Twitch. Not because we're creating content and serving ads. We're not relying along uh, on that low CPM that you get with internet advertising. Twitch has been smart, and it's worked out this deal where people can essentially sponsor you for free. And I think in that way, Twitch is kind of yeah. eating YouTube's lunch a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and the fact that I said you can. You can put you could put Playview on there. You could schedule in Playview and put it as a premiere, promote it and say, okay, eight o'clock it's gonna go live. You know you haven't got a bugger about of all the streaming problems that you might normally have. Um, and at the end, perhaps just do a drive to, to get people to, you know, add their their, their Twitch um, prime or, or to subscribe to one of the, the buttons. That's one one question I wanted to ask you, Shane, about Twitch. If you considered adding or using the tiers and the emotes on Twitch to try and engage the audience and give people an opportunity they wanted to do, I think it goes up to twenty four ninety nine um, to do that. Yeah, we've thought about it. Um, the truth of the matter is, is I'm always so busy while we're streaming that I can't be involved in chat yeah. anywhere near as much as I'd like to. And I think this show is kind of the result of that, is that I haven't been able to interact live with our users the way I've wanted to. And because I'm always kind of a key cog in whatever it is that we're doing, uh, I don't really have that opportunity. And so I wanted to take the time to set aside the time to spend with our users and our supporters. So um, I will look into that actually. You're right, it, it, it doesn't cost that much and it could be something that really ingratiates uh, us to our audience. But truth be told, you know, we're not mega streamers. You know, our streams don't have 20, mm -hmm. 30,000 people. And I think something like that might be a, more, a little bit more effective with people who have a larger audience. But I think no matter how big the audience is, people appreciate when you do stuff for them. And I think in honesty, again, you're right. Like Twitch is smart in how it's monetizing itself through not just the the viewers rewarding the streamers, but the streamers being able to kind of give back to the viewers as well. And I think that's really smart. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Being able to engage with the audience is key and um, people feel a lot more valued if you can do that. Like coming on the show, I feel valued already immediately 10 times more. So it's yeah. definitely great when, when you can take time out to, to do things like this. So um, Twitch has, has got it down in terms of audience interaction and, and whatnot because the YouTube comments aren't somewhere anyone wants to spend their time these days. So Yeah, you know. <laughs> I don't blame you there. I have, to, I have to sort through those things every week because uh, we... <laughs> We check all the comments on YouTube. We don't just let them roll. So every mm. single comment that goes live on our YouTube channel, I actually look at it before it goes up because, believe me, it, that that needs to happen. Otherwise, it's a complete disaster. <laughs> so uh, I feel you that on that. That sounds like a job for Vincent. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sorry, listen, Vince. man, thanks for calling in again. I really appreciate it. Another great call with great comments. Here's another MGS alert for you. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. All right, another uh, great call from OTAPS from Sifted. Um, so I think we've covered that pretty well. Let's move on to the next topic. Metal Gear Survive. So I talked about it just a minute ago. I was talking about how we just put up our play view for it on YouTube. And actually, we've got 
of the comments we've got on it, it, it got a lot of great comments. People actually really like it. So hopefully they'll start looking for our play views a little bit more regularly. People have a tendency to subscribe to a YouTube channel and just expect that one type of content coming from that YouTube channel, and that's it. Um, so if you publish something else, it's like a lot of people subscribe to our channel for Pactor Factor. So if you publish something else, they're like, what's this? I subscribe to you for Pactor Factor. I don't want this other stuff in my feed. And they'll say, you're spamming our feed or what? And we don't spam, believe me. It's not like we're publishing hundreds of videos a day or whatever. But um, so we did just publish the Metal Gear Survive play view on our YouTube channel. And it just came out yesterday. Um, I want to talk about this game because I played the beta. And you guys, have I hope you've watched my play view where I was a little befuddled at the backlash for this game. Um it's not a terrible game. It's not, I wouldn't say it's a Metal Gear game per se. You don't get a campaign that is worthy of that moniker. Uh, there's not a lot of story in the campaign at all. In fact, it's kind of one of those games where you've just repurposed um, the multiplayer component and put a very flimsy framework around it. But I did have a good bit of fun playing the game. And so what I want to hear from you guys is, one, are you willing to give it a chance? And if you are, are you going to buy it? Are you going to wait for a price drop? Or two, if you're not going to give it a chance, explain to me why. Tell me why you're not willing to give Metal Gear Survive a chance. Um, I'm assuming a lot of you guys played the beta. Maybe that's why. But give me a call. Let me know. Uh, Sifted Games on Skype. And we'll get somebody in here who can give their perspective on the first Metal Gear game that does not involve Kojima. And I didn't know if I'd ever see that day. If you'd asked me five or six years ago, I'd have said, no way. All right, we got Mitchell calling back in. Come on, guys. You got to get involved here. Not that we don't appreciate the folks calling back in. What's up, Mitchell? Hey, Shane. What's up? I, uh, that new Metal Gear game just kind of has me a little bit befuddled, to be honest. I, um, I don't understand why it still exists. Well, from a monetary experience, like perspective it does but it just doesn't have any of the soul from what i've seen anyway that makes a metal gear game and i understand the gameplay loop from what you've kind of showed off looks enjoyable and everything but i don't know to me it's not worth the purchase unless i i have some sort of of insurance on my investment for it just from because there's no history of this game playing like this there's no history of this developer making a game like this before. It's just, it's a complete anomaly that I'm just not completely sold on quite yet. I think that's the main reason why it hasn't gotten my money yet. Did you play the beta? Played a little bit of it. I, to be honest, I was a little bit busy, but basically the beta was me putting up a fence and poking people, and that was it. So <laughs> It took was, me a while to figure was, out, like, to poke people, to be honest with you. Like, I didn't get it, like, right away. <laughs> And then they sound a, a little weird, but at poking zombies in the head—that's that's what I'm good at. So um, it just—I I didn't really dig the gameplay loop very much. I I do love the world Kojima has created, even though this isn't created by Kojima, and that is absolutely a huge factor, is, as in why I don't want to really play this game too because of that backlash, and I don't really want to give a company my money for you know, trading creative decisions and, and and people the way that they have in the past. And that's, in all honesty, a huge um, reason why I really haven't gotten into it, I feel. Just that's lingering in the back of my head. But 
I just didn't see enough in the gameplay loop that actually warranted going out there and buying the game for, I think it's 40 bucks, right? Yeah, it's discounted. and That doesn't change your perspective a little bit? No, not really. I mean, it does kind of put it more in the position of like a... Um, I don't know, like a, an expansion, like a standalone expansion, kind of like the Undead Nightmare DLC from Red Dead. So I kind of get that, but from what I'm seeing, it it doesn't combine the gameplay loops of the original Metal Gear Solid games enough to actually make it feel like it's cohesive with that series. Like I am, like to be honest, I would be less offended if it played more like a Metal Gear game and they try to continue on the series that way. Do you think that would work, though? <laughs> like, <laughs> no, people are going to be pissed. This, this was, this I think was it would be worse if they tried to make a legit MGS without Kojima. Uh, it, they'd have to get the right people involved with it. Like, I do think that there is studios out there that can make a game and people will love it. Like, you looked at Platinum Games when they made Metal Gear Revengeance, was it, I think it was? Yeah. And... You know, mixed reviews on that one overall, but I thought it was a fantastic Metal Gear game and still kept the spirit of what makes a Metal Gear alive while changing the gameplay loop enough to make something fresh and different. To be honest, I would have preferred to see a second iteration in that series with the new engine and just, you know, zombies in a Metal Gear game, not really my thing, even though that game is batshit crazy most of the time. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> does anything not make sense in a Metal Gear game? Anything can make sense. Nothing makes sense in a Kojima game in general. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's... I don't know. It was, a, it was a tough decision to make. I'm glad Konami hasn't given up the, the, the idea of making a, a AAA game. I just feel like this, this already started off with a bad taste in my mouth, and it's really hard to wash it away. That's the main thing for me. So you're not going to buy it? <laughs> Unless I see some um, like just amazing gameplay videos that actually change what I think that the everything's going to play out wise is going to be, I just I don't see enough there to actually warrant it. And it does look fun, but is it worth forty dollars? Fun? Not really. If it was on sale for half off, I'll probably give it a spin. But it's at brand new retail. I really just don't see a reason to get it right now. Here's what I'm wondering, per an earlier discussion about free games on PSN and Xbox Live. I'm wondering if a lot of people might just wonder, hey, is this game going to be free in like three months on Xbox Live or PlayStation Network? I mean, it, we were talking earlier as well about multiplayer games on those services. This is a multiplayer game where conceivably Konami could make a lot of money off cosmetics if it were to give it away. Do you think maybe this is a good target for that? I, I actually 100% think so, just based on PlayStation's relationship. Granted, now they have Kojima and their ecosystem of developers. Maybe that would keep them from doing something like that, but this is 100% a title that if it doesn't get the, the, um, the huge influx of players that they were hoping is going to be right on the chopping block to put into one of those services 100%. I could even see it on Xbox Game Pass in probably two months, probably. That would be bad. <laughs> yeah, I, I on it. I'm not seeing the sales on this one. I I know most of them are probably going to be digital, but I'm really not seeing the sales on this one. 
you know, a lot of people hate Konami and hate on Konami because of how it's changed its business over the last two years since Kojima left. Mm-hmm. Not only did Kojima leave, but Konami really stopped making console games and stopped supporting a lot of its big IPs like Castlevania, which I totally understand why people would be angry about that. But if you look at Konami's bottom line, it's actually making more money now than ever. And well, those, those pachinko machines are really nice, you know? They, <laughs> uh, they generate a lot of revenue. I, oh, I know. Uh, you know, you they are running their company like a business, and I can't fault them for that. But at some point, you gotta you gotta loose up the reins and finally say, "Hey, we need to let some people breathe a little bit." Like you, you have you know Ubisoft, and you have EA. EA is considered one of the worst companies to work for. Period. But they'll they'll make it unravel. They're doing the all one way out, whatever it's called. Fay March. That the developer had to let everyone know that EA is fantastic <laughs> and would never ever hurt them. Yeah. Um, um, but um, you know, it's it's kind of tough for me to actually give Konami a second chance. I do know that I want them to to get their heads out of their asses and actually do something about their franchises that they're leaving out in the, the dirt. But this isn't the right foot forward for them, I feel. Um, maybe another Castlevania game would get people in the good graces of the game. Maybe um, maybe something in that line. Oh, that they've always had trouble with the Lords of Shadows series that they pushed so hard. And that really just kicked them off of that train. But I just think they need to do something purely for fan service at this point in order to get groundswell to actually make a AAA game sell well at this point. You know? I don't think we're going to see another Castlevania. I, I really don't. No. Um, no. Maybe Konami... That's going to stay on a machine forever. Maybe Konami farms it out to another developer and lets another developer make it like kind of like they did with Lords of Shadow and then publish it. Yeah. But I don't think we'll see another in-house produced Castlevania game, whether handheld, not that handheld even exists anymore, not handheld or console. Um, I just think Konami... It's kind of washed its hands of that stuff. It's settled on the franchises that no can generate money, and it's it's in the black. It's making money, and yeah. I think that's all Konami's concerned about. I know we hate Konami because of how it's kind of handled its business over the last couple of years, but you know, at the end of the day, it has to answer to its stockholders, not the angry internet mobs. And uh, <laughs> stockholders are happy. Internet mobs, so all not the angry so much. Internet mob people buy one stock. Maybe we could actually change something then, um, <laughs> but <laughs> no, they don't. They, we own the company outright at this point. But um, I, I really think the only way we're going to see that franchise come back is if you know that Netflix animated series spins off and gets enough attention to warrant this thing being a more of a media enterprise rather or media franchise rather than just isolated in a game. I think that's the only way. I think that's the only thing that could entice them to actually go out there and do something. So, well, I guess we'll see. We should should probably get numbers for Metal Gear Survive here in just a couple weeks. Actually, like three weeks. Uh, they typically come out the second week of the month. So uh, we'll be able to figure out how poorly or how good Metal Gear Survive has done very quickly. Um, any guess on sales? What do you think it'll sell in its first month across all platforms? 
Uh, <laughs> I'm not good at the numbers, to be honest. Yeah. I, I really don't think it's going to be up there. I mean, I think it has a lot of brand recognition. It does have a lot of brand recognition. Do you think I people just feel know like the, the, that... the people that recognize the Metal Gear brand are loyalist fans that have been there for you know practically forever? So that brand, a lot of people already know the backstory to it. Um, I think it will sell okay. I don't think it's going to completely bomb, but I think it's going to be way under their projections. I'm going to guess across all platforms in the first month, and they only have, well, here's the thing. They're only going to have 10, 12 days in February. Yeah. So not a lot of time. So I'm going to guess 350K across all platforms in February. There are some people a, who yeah. have no idea, one, that Kojima made Metal Gear, two, yeah. that Kojima left Konami. There's, we always assume everyone knows as much as we do, and that's just simply not the case. So I think there's enough people who are ignorant to what's happened that will just go buy it because it's the brand new Metal Gear game. 350K, I'm calling it. <laughs> 350. I'll, I'll do 300, and then when we get the um, the results back, you could you could make fun of me or whatever. This is like the Price Is Right, <laughs> the showcase $1. showdown. One dollar. <laughs> I'm gonna go with that. It's long. <laughs> All right, we'll see you about that. Thanks for the call, man. Great call again. Of course, thanks. All right. So, people, let's get involved. See. You're not going to get hurt calling into the show. We're having fun here. So if you got Skype, give us a ring on one of these topics. Uh, I do want to thank Otaps and Mitchell for helping us out and making sure we have someone to talk to. Because otherwise, it's just me sitting here. Um, okay, Tom Duvax calling back in. Let's see if he wants to talk about Metal Gear. Tom, can you hear us now? We can't hear him. I think he just butt-dialed us. Yo! <laughs> there he is! Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I can! We all can! What's up, Tom? What do you want to talk about? Hello! Hello! We're here! <laughs> I can hear you! Okay! What do you want to say? Alright. Okay, um... I'm going to be a little bit more generous than you guys and say that it'll be 500K. 500K in 12 days. Remember, on The Price is Right, you can't go over. <laughs> so you're saying 500K in the first yep. tw 12 days across all platforms. <laughs> Is that right? Is that is that your your estimate? All right, we're having problems with Tom's connection. <coughs> there he is. We can hear you, Tom. Yeah, pretty much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. So five hundred k. It's a bit of a delay here. Listen on Skype, not on the stream. You should be able to get my voice through Skype. 
Well, we did get your prediction. So 500K from Tom Duvac. We'll see who's right when it's all said and done. Let's get uh, Daniel McAndrew in here. He's been trying, and we haven't got him into the show. What's up, Daniel? Hi, Shane. What's up? Welcome to the show. Yeah, cheers. Um, I just wanted to let you know, I don't know if you realized, I'm Shanghai Dan on the Sifted site. What's your name? Your fantasy league. Shanghai Dan 90. Oh, Shanghai Dan. He was the winner of the first season of Sifted's Fantasy Football League. And it looks no, like... it wasn't. I, I donated the trophy. It was uh, oh. it was McWomble who was the champion. You I keep getting it confused. Right <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So what's your but, take no, on so, uh, Metal Gear Survive? So Metal Gear Survive, um, I think the whole premise of it being like a multiplayer against zombies thing kind of opens up the idea of what's popular in the multiplayer scene at the moment. Um, I'm a teacher at a secondary school. And all of my kids, they're all very, they're not hard, none of them are really hardcore gamers. I've got a few PC ones who are, but all of them are playing Fortnite. Everyone, that, every, everyone is playing Fortnite. Everyone. everyone. That's what everyone's talking about. And I did mention Metal Gear Survive, and most of them said, is that got a single player component? And I was like, no. And they said, well, why would we move away from Fortnite? <laughs> Fortnite, by the way, <laughs> is a phenomenon. An absolute phenomenon. I saw J.J. Watt, who is defensive lineman for the Houston Texans. He put up a poll on Twitter or Facebook yesterday. And a lot of people have done this over the last couple weeks. It's just the typical Fortnite or PUBG. And Fortnite won 73 to like 20-something. Like Fortnite is just taking over that genre. Yeah, it's incredible. I just, th- I just think, like, I was shocked how a free-to-play game like that would just like take over the market. And I think, like, as you were saying earlier in the last conversation, the fact that Metal Gear Survive is forty dollars, yeah, or for, or I don't know how much it is in the UK. I haven't looked, but for me, when you've got a free game like Fortnite and you've got your on- online, obviously you haven't got against zombies. But I'm pretty sure I don't know if Fortnite will release the. the uh, battle Royale, not the Battle Royale, the other option, free to play at some point. They did say they were going to. Then there you've got your fix and you've probably got a free game there. So then why would you spend $40 on an IP that, yeah, it's popular, but um, people might say that it was in the past. And can I be a bit behind the trend there? And obviously losing a developer like Kojima hasn't really helped them out there. No, <laughs> it hasn't. Not with uh, Mindshare, for sure. But again... Like I said before, I think a lot of people don't even realize that he worked on the series or that he's no longer working on the series. Are you saying, though? Go ahead. Sorry, yeah, I can see what you're saying. And I do think that, um, obviously, a lot of people wouldn't know that. But as I said, I think it's a really weird one because all the the kids that I teach were all like all the Judy, FIFA kind of people. And then all of a sudden overnight they just switched to Fortnite, and that's all they're talking about and i was just blown away because uh yeah um, i'm not a massive multiplayer shooter i play battlefield so are you saying that metal gear survive should be free to play is that essentially what you're saying yeah 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 i think it should be free to play and i think free to play with cosmetics in the same way that Fortnite and the way they're making money I think would have been the better way to go for go for it because I think it's going to get more people onto it 
and that's how Fortnite the kid took off so so rapidly because it was free to play. Yeah, people would just download it, give it a go, and see what it was like. And I think if they'd if they'd just gone for the free to play model with that game and cut their losses, I think it probably would have been more successful because I played the beta and I did enjoy it. But am I going to spend forty dollars on it? Probably not. <laughs> Yeah, why would you? <laughs> I mean, that's why you play the beta. I mean, that's exactly why you play it. Yeah. So I'm not saying it's not worth $40. I'm just saying what's out there at the moment and the way a lot of the models are turning to, uh, I think you've got other things to play. You don't have to pay $40 to spend, which is a shame because I think I'm not a big believer in the microtransactions. I actually hate buying games where you have to spend more money for microtransactions. Yeah. But it seems like people are buying into this with your Fortnites and things like that. So, like, I don't, I don't really know what you can really do about that. But I think that kind of game where it's only multiplayer would have probably had more legs. I might be wrong, but I think we'll have would have had more legs if it was free to play. And I think, like you were saying earlier, a lot of people are going to wait for PlayStation Gold, not PlayStation Gold, PlayStation Plus and Xbox Live uh, to become free to play or free game to download. All right. Thank you for your call, man. Great job. No worries. Cheers. Cheers. All right. That's enough Metal Gear. Let's move on. Let's talk next about a crazy game that was announced this week. Um, kind of came out of nowhere, but it's already kind of, I wouldn't say it's going viral, but it's getting a lot of pickup with YouTubers and streamers. It's a game called Super Seducer. Um, it's, well, here, I'll, I'll just show it to you here. So Super Seducer is kind of a dating sim for the West. Obviously, dating sims are a big deal in Japan. Um, they haven't really caught on here. And this is sort of the westernized take on the dating sim. And, uh, it's hosted by this guy who is supposed to be, like, the ultimate pickup artist or whatever. Uh, I don't know. I kind of bring, call that into question after watching him in a couple of these videos. Um, but he's supposed to be this big womanizer or whatever. And he's he's come under fire in the past for saying some insensitive things about women and um, making some really gross sort of generalizations about women in general. Um, but he's made this video game that is called Super Seducer. And I guess if you talk about the game structurally, it's really a choose-your-own-adventure game where you're trying to date the opposite sex. So you're presented with scenarios, and then a menu pops up. And you can see here, there's different scenarios that you can play through. There's meeting the girl on the street. There's meeting the girl at the bar. There's meeting the girl at the restaurant. And then you kind of choose your own adventure to uh, try to seal the deal with the girls. And if you make a bad decision, this guy pops up, pops up on screen and explains to you the mistakes that you made um, and what you need to do to uh, seal the deal the next time you try it. So I'm just curious. All right, do any of you out there play these types of games? Obviously, they're not very prevalent as far as Western games, but Japanese. Do any of you guys play dating sims from Japan? If any of you do, I would really, really love to hear from you. And kind of explain to us what it is about these games that makes you enjoy them and what makes them tick and what makes them good or bad. Um, this one in particular seems to be in really poor taste. Um, it's 
It's one of those games that, in all honesty, makes our industry look really bad. Uh, it makes us all look like a bunch of misogynist pigs, and it it provides a very narrow view of male and female relationships. And I have not played a lot of dating sims from Japan, so I'm hoping some of you out there have played these games, um, know what they're about, and maybe you can explain what the fascination is with the dating sim. Um, I don't even know if I've ever played one, to be perfectly honest with you, so I'm kind of ignorant on this genre on the whole. Um, but... I'm guessing some of you have played it, so give us a call, Sifted Games, S-I-F-T-D-G-A-M-E-S, on Skype, and we'll get you in here, and let's talk to an expert about dating sims, at least someone who's played one or two, and can explain how they work and why people seem to resonate with them. Um, one perspective on this game, at least from my perspective, that I give a little bit of respect for is that at least it's trying to make this genre relevant. Um, the genre has not been successful in the United States in the past. And maybe part of it is the cultural differences uh, with um, Japan and the U.S. And there are a lot. I mean, if you ever spend a lot of time in Japan, you figure out pretty quickly that there are a lot of things that you may say or do in America that aren't going to fly in Japan. And um, this genre, again, has primarily been a part of Japanese culture. And so I could see why maybe it hasn't caught on here yet. But now we have this instance of this westernized take on it. And the guy's from Europe, he's not from the U.S., but obviously he is from Western civilization. Uh, and a lot of people would probably call him the typical meathead, um, but he, he sure seems to think he's successful. So uh, he must be doing something right, or he wouldn't be able to get someone to invest in him to create a video game like this. So we're not getting any calls from people who have played these games. So maybe just call in and give us your perspective on this game. Do you think that... This game is ultimately going to hurt the industry. Or do you think it's something that, yeah, it's kind of a misstep at first, but it could lead to other developers maybe tackling the genre and doing it with a lot more tact and uh, expertise? Um, obviously, there's the opportunity there if you get more skilled developers. This publisher of this game, I've never even heard of the publisher before. It's just some weird, like, indie student publisher that's trying to get it out there. And it did, it was announced and then released like the next day. So there wasn't a lot of marketing or build up involved um, in its release. Uh, but you could see if maybe you had a better developer, a better publisher behind it, maybe they could create something that might be a little more interesting. But then I wonder, wouldn't they just make that a part of a bigger game? Wouldn't they? And I mean, we've kind of seen this obviously with Bioware and the Mass Effect games where um, romance is in the game, but it's just a small sliver of the overall experience. And that seems to be the way Western developers have traditionally dealt with the dating sim model, so to speak. Uh, it's not that they're creating separate games for it. It's that they're, uh, they're making it an element of their games and not the entire crux or the thrust of the games that they're creating. So, um, I was really disappointed to see this, to be perfectly honest with you. Um... These games kind of, I felt like, went away back in, like, the GameCube, PS2, Xbox era. Um, there were games like BMX, XXX that were kind of the same. Um, it's not that there were dating sim elements in that game, but there was kind of that misogynist look at male-female relationships. And we finally have someone in. What's up? Welcome to the show. You are live. You hear me, Shane? I can. Give us your okay. name. Uh, I am Joseph LaRusso. What's up, Joseph? 
Welcome and, uh, to I THS. am Lionheart in Twitch. All right. So I wanted to give my perspective on the uh, dating sim thing. I don't. I've never played before or anything like that. But I figured I would just uh, give my two cents because the romance part of Bioware's games is actually one of my favorites. Oh, great! So what so do you think? I what think do you think about this game? So uh, I, it's it's interesting. I think that. You're kind of right that it's an opportunity for people who know how to handle these kinds of issues with more tact to, to see whether or not there's interest in them. It doesn't have to be designed by someone that, that has any sort of misogynistic views or, or uh, depicts women in that way. What do you think is a uh, smart way to handle it? What games do you think have handled dating and romance especially well? Uh, I really like the way that, that Bioware did Dragon Age is uh, romance and Inquisition and Origins. Dragon Age 2, not, not so much. That was a little bit of a misstep. But uh, their first and third game were really well done. Are you interested um, in think... Super Seducer at all? No, probably not. <laughs> it's kind of one of those um, things you might want to watch someone else play it on YouTube or something. Yeah, see, that's that's the thing. I might check it out on, on Twitch or YouTube just to see what it's all about and whatnot. But uh, as far as actually play it, I like the substance to, to be in there. I just think that I, I think that you need to have more than just the sim. I think that you need uh, some sort of overarching narrative. It's it's fun to play as a character uh, and have a story being told, and then put that as a, as I mean, it can be a thorough sub subsect. But I think it's cool to have it as a subsect that that's in other uh, in games. What what do you think makes romance options good or bad in games uh the writing is probably the biggest thing uh it has to you have to feel chemistry with the interaction between the characters so that can go from anything from like voice actors of uh you're a player character or no voice actor in the case of dragon age origins and the voice actor who does the your uh target uh, so it, it's really the it's really the actors and and the writing and how they handle it because um, it's it's an interesting topic to try and handle in a video game because it's so interactive. You know, I think that The Witcher Three does Geralt with Yennefer and Geralt with Triss really well. What do you? But when you start thinking about romance in games, what makes it realistic or unrealistic? I'm assuming you've had relationships with real people, real women or men or whatever. Um, Right. What do you think they get right when you compare games to real life? I think that the interactions have to seem natural. They have to seem sincere. So probably the biggest issue with, uh, like, I said, Dragon Age Origins and their romance, it's done well in some ways. In other ways, it's really bad because you just give gifts and your number goes up. And that's a strange thing to, to have happen. But I yeah. think that when you have dialogue choices that seem like that the characters are interacting like actual people... Then, then you end up in a situation where it's like, wow, I feel like I've actually grown and developed this relationship. And for me personally, when it came to like the Witcher series, I was Triss for one, two, and three all the way through. I played them all, so so I really was invested in that relationship. By the time three came along, yeah, I've heard a lot of people share your sentiment that uh, Dragon Age does it best. Don't you find it odd that? Bioware hasn't managed to improve how it does that stuff? Because, I mean, Dragon Age, we haven't got, had a new one for years now. And we just had Andromeda. A lot of people complained about the relationship stuff in that game. Um, what do you think the differences are between what Dragon Age did and what Bioware has done in Mass Effect? Uh, 
Well, the team is the biggest difference. You know, uh, the writer, the, the lead writer for the first uh, few Dragon Ages was David Gator, and uh, with assistance from Patrick Weeks and Karen Weeks, and they're all fantastic at what they do. And and then Gator has left and Patrick Weeks has taken over. So I, I trust him to write a good romance. I trust that he'll do a good job in the next Dragon Age. He didn't write Mass Effect. Someone That's else did. That's true. And so you think writing is what's most important. Absolutely, and I feel like this Seducer game is probably not the best well-written. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> it's so <laughs> bad. I mean, it, it's legitimately embarrassing. I mean, I think a lot of people will look at this game. I hope it doesn't end up making it on like all the news cycles and mainstream media and all that kind of stuff, because I think a lot of people... I don't think may... it will. I, you don't, or you do think it will? I don't. I do not think it will, no. Yeah, I honestly don't think they have a big enough publicity department or a big enough marketing budget to make it go big on mainstream media but if it were to um it could be really bad because i think a lot of people would look at it like oh this is what gamers think you need to do to find yourself a significant other and i don't think anything could be further from the truth i don't know i i i would disagree with that just because Saying to, to me, saying that that this video game existing and making people think that that's what gamers think is like saying people who watch pornography think that that's how you get women in porn, like in real life, it's how it's done in pornography. Oh, I don't, I don't agree with that logic. I think that that's the type of logic that's often to, applied to games for uh, people who don't get I games. See. Yeah, I mean, because once it gets to the mainstream sure. media, sure, I can see that. those people are like the last game they played was like Miss Pac Man or whatever. They don't. I mean, you're seeing it this week again after the uh, school shooting in Florida. You're starting to see a lot of people in the press, starting, politicians in all honesty, starting to blame video games again for real violence, even though there are thousands and thousands and thousands of studies, and not one of them has ever pointed a link between gaming and violence. But the data doesn't seem to matter in 2018 anymore. It's a did, it's all about see? feeling, and this is what I feel. It's like no, there's a difference between facts and data and how you feel. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people might watch the trailer for this and say, "This makes me feel like gamers are socially awkward and don't know how to work with the opposite sex, and they're using this to try to." to figure it out and yeah i don't know if you watch video game donkey you ever watch any of his stuff no he's a he's a youtuber and he typically just does kind of off the cuff kind of fun funny game reviews video reviews he covered this game and he did an amazing job but he he shows in that video how gamers will really watch it um which is essentially just making fun of it and feeling disgusted <laughs> that this piece of software was ever released in honesty um yeah but you're did right you, did you see that there's a, a apparently a state senator who's trying to introduce a bill to tax violent video games and to donate the tax revenue to mental health I, I did not see that i mean yeah that was announced earlier today yeah what's 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 going on right now is and i don't want to get too much into politics or anything because this is a gaming show but what's happening right now is you're seeing the deflection it's like you're seeing the people who support gun rights deflecting and saying it's about mental health and then you have the other side deflecting and and saying it's not about mental health it's about the guns and so i think right now we're kind of in this hysteria stage um particularly with shootings where everyone's just 
a chicken with their head cut off right now, trying to figure out what they can do to solve it or trying to figure out how they won't be blamed for it. And, uh, right. and, and I think you see that with games a lot in all honesty, they're often a scapegoat. And, uh, I just hope that this game doesn't end up being the next one, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. I, I agree. I, I don't think it will. I don't think it'll have a big enough following or, or you know, it's not, it's not battlefront. It's not Star Wars with, with gambling, you know, it's not going to get that kind of attention. So I have a question for you. So you're really into romancing games. Would you mm -hmm. be interested in a, a game that's primarily about relationships? So let's say a dating sim made in the West that actually uses some tact and uh, is a good game. Would you be interested in something like that? I'd look at it, absolutely. You would? I mean, if, if, yeah, if, if it's, you know, if it's good, if it's good and, and it's interesting and it's well written, then there's no reason not to at least check it out. Right on. Well, thank you so much for your call, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, Shane. Keep doing what you're doing. Love sifted, man. Thanks. Appreciate it, bro. Have a good one. You too. Another great call there. In fact, I got to give him something for that great call. We'll give him an applause. All right, so just one more topic for our debut episode of today's High Score. Um, hopefully you guys are enjoying it. I'm having fun talking to you guys. And already, we're not even done with the first episode. I, I can tell there's been no other gaming show like this. So I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, we've slowly worked out the kinks as the show has gone on. I think the production has gotten better. Next episode should be much smoother. And I want to mention we're going to be doing this show pretty often. Um, I might come back and do this again tomorrow. So um, I wanted to create content that would connect us together, but also something that we could do regularly so we would have something consistently to uh, put up on Sifted and on our Patreon. And hopefully as people see this first episode, they'll start sort of tuning in so that they can give their feedback as well. We value all your opinions. So jump in here. Again, this is our last topic of the show. So if you've been sitting there holding your peace, Come at us. Um, I, w I also want to give a special commendation to the brave ones who have called in today. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of people just sitting there right now. They're scared to call in or whatever. Don't be that way. Uh, we're, we're all sifters, and we all are passionate about games, and we all have different perspectives on it, and that's what this show is all about. So last topic of the day is indie games. So I've been playing this game called Debris. And I've got to say, as someone who works in the industry, you get emails for code every day from indie publishers, um, PR people who represent indie games. There are some PR agencies that really only represent indie games and maybe just have a couple AAA or big budget games here or there. But literally every day in my inbox, there are emails with five brand new indie games. Hey, here's preview code. Hey, here's review code if you want it, whatever. And so... You have to kind of sift, haha, sift through a lot of requests for people to cut for you to cover these people's games, and um, I do that every day. And I find games that I think are interesting, and I try to cover those. And so, a game that I've been playing lately is a game called Debris. Um, Debris is I don't know how to really explain it. It's a it's an underwater exploration game. 
Um, and it's not really like a survival game. Like we, we've talked about Subnautica recently on Game Face. It, it's not like that. It's a underwater exploration. And in fact, the best way I could maybe describe it is it's kind of like Journey Underwater. Um, the setup for the game is that you are working on a film crew. You're shooting some underwater stuff. You've been employed by this major corporation. And you're filming underneath an ice shelf. And something goes wrong. You don't know what because you're underwater. And suddenly you're trapped under the ice. And the objective is to find the other divers that you were with. And then with them, swim up to the surface so that you survive. But it's not a survival game. You're not collecting resources or anything like that. That will uh, ultimately help you build something to move farther through the ice and then eventually get topside. That's not what it is. You're just trying to find your way out and get as many people out with you as possible. Um, there, it. I know you're watching the footage right now. You're like, oh, it looks like a, an underwater shooter. It is kind of. So you have that gun thing. Um, and, it, and from what I played so far, it only had two uses. It had one ability to send out a flare so you could see. And a lot of the areas that you're in are really dark. Um, and then there is an actual gun. And what happens is there are... There's debris, haha, that's the name of the game, on the bottom of the ocean. And the, this debris is being guarded by fish. And there you can see right there, a fish just attacked me. And now they're swimming back down. So what you have to do first is you have to kill the fish. And you can see I'm going to try to do that right here. Once you kill the fish, then this little sort of submarine that your partner will swoop in and pick up the debris. And then it transforms that debris into energy that you can share between yourself and the little, the little drone. Um, so you have, it's kind of like you're balancing the health meter between yourself and this drone and your oxygen. And so it's kind of like this seesaw where you essentially go into a new area, kill all the fish, the sub goes down, swoops, picks up the debris, and then you share the oxygen between the two of you. And you can see right there, that's the, uh, the drone picking up the debris off of the bottom. And then a lot of times after he does that, it'll swim up to you and you'll split whatever was collected between the two of you. So... That's the setup for this game. But what I wanted to talk about is just indie games in general. And after I spent about an hour and a half with this game, I just started to wonder, like, why why does this game exist? And look, I, I don't want to offend the developers who are working on this game. I'm sure they worked really hard on it and maybe made a lot of sacrifices to create it. But there are so many indie games. There are so many indie games that you could run a website solely about indie games and you could never cover them all, let alone being a site like Sifted or IGN or whatever that's covering all the big budget games. Um, there are just too many. And I talked about on Game Face last week about how Valve hasn't done a great job of keeping the garbage off of Steam. And I'm not even talking about that. I'm not talking about the games that you see Jim Sterling play every week or review or whatever that he does his let's play so i'm not talking about those types of games not those shovelware bottom feeders i'm talking about games like this where you look at them and you're like that game looks pretty good um you know a lot of side scrolling whatever i just i'm just getting to a place where i'm just wondering why these games exist what is the purpose of making these games if uh, to me if you're an indie developer and you don't have a unique concept, and this is not a unique concept, and making another side-scrolling platformer is not a, a unique concept, and making another Metroidvania is not a unique concept, 
it's just I feel like it's it's all just so redundant and I get it there's only so much you can do with a small budget and I get that there's only so much you can do with a small team and I also understand that a lot of times great ideas come out of indie games and sometimes those ideas are extrapolated across the entire industry and you start seeing them in big budget games um I get all that. But when you're working on a game like this, or you're working on another side-scrolling platformer that just has a different character or a different plot that's told through text, why? Why Why are you doing it? Um, again, another angle, people will say, oh, well, you have to learn somewhere. You have to learn somehow. You have to get your feet wet somehow. I, I, I get that. I just don't understand why all these games are flooding the marketplace. Because... All it's doing is obscuring good games from getting the recognition they deserve. I know I, I kind of flogged this horse a little bit on Game Face this week. I totally get that. Um, but it, it bothers me because I've been playing this game and I'm just like, I can see a lot of work has gone into this. And I can see that whoever worked on this is very passionate about it. But why? I, I played an hour of it. I didn't want to play anymore. I planned on doing a play view for the game. After I played it for an hour, I'm like, what do I say? I can describe this game in 30 seconds and then there's really nothing after that that's worth talking about. And there are hundreds and hundreds of games like this clogging up not just Steam but also Xbox Live and PlayStation Network. I'm just struggling to see one where the developers get the motivation to make games. You know before you even start working on the game, hey is this a unique concept? Is this something that's going to add some semblance of value to the medium? Or is this just another cut and paste job is this another hey it's just like this game but it has this kind of a character or it's just like this game or it has and it has a new art style that's that's not good enough and look i i don't begrudge anyone for working on a game that's great i've never done it and that's certainly something that someone would do that i can't say i've ever done but just making games for the sake of making games is fine and making games for the sake of trying to eventually get a job working on good games that's great but making games just to fill up the database and steam to me is is not a good idea um of course you can't tell somebody hey your idea is unoriginal no one's gonna care it's not gonna sell you can't do that you can't be honest right you got to just let them make their game and put it on the service and check and see if it crashes or not or check to see if there's something offensive in the game or not or something political that could trigger people. You got to do that, right? But you don't actually have to wonder whether or ask whether this game actually adds any value to your service or any value to the player. Um, I'm interested to get your take on this. I mean, I can look at empirical data on Sifted. I can see you guys don't watch media or coverage of indie games. You just don't. It's just like esports. Nobody cares. We got a call coming in. Let's get them in and see what their perspective is. Hello and welcome Hello? to the show. Uh, can you hear me? Absolutely, I can. Welcome to today's high score. What's your perspective on indie games? My perspective on indie games is very much that 
It is that, yes, there are a lot of, like, bad ones, but a lot of the new ideas for, like, games comes from the indie side of the coin. So I think they're much more of a net positive than net negative. And as far as curation, particularly with Steam goes, if Valve actually did what people wanted them to do, they'd be slapped for antitrust. They're effectively the place people go to buy games on PCs. If they turn a game down, they really do have to have a good reason for it, or else they could be accused of abusing market position. But don't you think when you're working on an indie game, you kind of know when you draw up your design doc and you start specking and working on your concept? Don't you know right then whether that game is actually something that's innovative or pushing the medium forward? I mean, not always, and not all big games are totally innovative. They're just games you don't see a lot of. Like, think of Stardew Valley. Is that new? No, it's Harvest Moon, but when was the last good Harvest Moon game? No, I mean, that's a good point. Um, I think you can certainly look at the market and figure out whether a genre is overserved, underserved, or non-existent altogether. And Farming Sims... They've been kind of pop. They've become kind of popular over the last few years. You look at like the farming simulator franchise, and some there's like three other kind of knockoffs of that right now. But nothing kind of has the charm of Harvest Moon the way Stardew Valley does. But I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm not talking it. Talking about indie developers that look at the market and say, "Hey, this is being underserved. Let's fill that niche." I'm talking about what I mentioned earlier, the side-scrolling platformers, the Metroidvania clones, the first-person walking simulators, the first-person adventure games, the horror adventure games. Uh, Maybe I'm especially sensitive to this because I work on Sifted, and I see everything that comes out every day. And ultimately, a lot of times, we have to create games for these games that we know no one's going to watch a trailer for, no one's going to care about, and they're going to come and they're going to go, and they're going to release, and it's going to be as if they never existed. And so I wonder, should they exist? I mean, ultimately, that's up to the individual person and group making them. If they want to take that chance, that's their chance that they're taking. And again, as far as Valve goes, like Valve has already said, it's like if we actually curated games, we would have missed Stardew Valley. A lot of this came from missing Minecraft because they initially rejected Minecraft. But anybody could see that Minecraft, the first time you see it, you know, you knew that was an innovative game. Like anybody... I didn't like Minecraft when I first saw Not it. Not if you just looked at the screenshots of that game and read the pitch. <laughs> really? Reading the pitch of Minecraft? You wouldn't think that was an innovative game? You can build I mean, anything not- you want and... It's not the first game that let you build stuff. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, obviously there's been Lego this, Lego that, but the first time I saw Minecraft, I... I, I think knew. you're. I think there's a hot 2020 vision there that you're looking through. No, I remember the very day I saw Minecraft for the first time. I remember it. People had been talking about it at game trailers for weeks, and were waiting for this little dinky website to pop up where they could buy the game. <laughs> and the day that the website went up, we all went back to the back, and everybody started downloading it. And then as soon as they downloaded it, they started playing. It was a very, very big deal there, and. As soon as I started playing it, I looked at it. I'm like, oh, my gosh, like this is groundbreaking. It's 
really unlike anything else. I know I don't personally care for it, but I could see the value in the game immediately. Immediately. Looking at this game that we're showing right now, do you see value in this game? I mean, no, but again, even graphics and even game genre can be misleading because if you take a look at Undertale at first glance, it looks like a run-of-the-mill, like, old uh, JRPG in the styling of 16-bit. But if you play it, you know that's not the case. So you're saying that you're thinking that they would make a decision on this just based upon looking at a screenshot and reading a paragraph about it. Do you think that's really how it works? When you have to, when you have to go through thousands of games and you only have a team of maybe 10 or 12 people who are, whose decision it is to decide whether to put it on the store or not, it's not like you have a lot of time to play more than 30 minutes of it before you have to move on. But, it, but it's not a thousand games a day. It's a thousand games every quarter or whatever. I mean, what, Steam had 7,000 games released on it last year? I think that was the number I saw. Yeah, but, like, again, like, a thousand a quarter times even 30 minutes is 30, is... That's a is, lot. Yeah, yeah it's 1,500 hours. Yeah, it is. But I, I still think that there's an initial screening process that you can look at and say, is this... Does it even have a chance of being innovative or pushing the pushing things forward or in ultimately selling. I mean, that's what these services care about. Are people going to buy the games or not buy but the games? Like, but again, that goes back to, but that goes back to things like, like Stardew Valley that again, didn't push the genre forward was a big seller. And like, again, you could say like, Oh, this is like a 16 bit farming game. Why would anyone care about this? Well, I could tell you that I, I knew people would care about it when I first heard about it because Harvest Moon has pretty much gone away and it used to be a bestseller and there just haven't <laughs> been games like that for a long time. So I don't know. I Stardew Valley is one example that maybe. But I also, but I also but, think you could throw in Limbo. You could also throw in. I mean, you could throw in Limbo. There are a lot of games that end up being real. There. There are a lot of games that look very generic. You read the description, they are very generic, but they end up being very good. I'd agree with that. And look, I'm not saying that you reject games based solely on a couple screenshots in a paragraph synopsis of the game. Like, I feel like you need to experience the game more than that before you can make the decision, but... But I think when, you can again, learn you a lot from bullet points, though. <laughs> if yeah, they give you a list you of bullet the... points for their game... And presumably, they're going to put the most innovative or interesting features in that list of bullet points. And if you look at that list of bullet points and you can't find one thing that makes it different, I think that you're pretty safe nine times out of ten rejecting that game. Yeah, and the one time you miss, you <laughs> miss, and it's really bad. That's life in a nutshell, isn't it? <laughs> Like, but like that's the problem is yeah. because you got to look. But again, this is obviously published by Microsoft, so it would get on there. But look at Ori and the Blind Forest. Yeah. Well, you could look like, at one screenshot the description of that, game. of that game. It sounds like a pretty bog standard Metro Metroidvania. <laughs> yeah. But I think you get look at one screenshot of that game and realize that it's something special. <laughs> 
like, like I said, like a lot of people say that their sort of algorithm doesn't work. I have never seen a lot of the like garbage, like asset flip games people like talk about are there. So yeah, yeah. I don't like, either. I, I mean, Matt there, Matt talked about this on Game Face this week. He said that the reason Jim Sterling sees all that stuff is because, because he's buying him. that stuff, and so it yeah. ends up bubbling up in his feed. I don't see it either. I I see lots of games in my Steam that. I would have no interest in buying. I mean, typically the stuff yeah. that bubbles up for me, I'm like, I don't care about any of this. But I also, and again, like I also don't necessarily think we should be looking at it. It's like, is this game going to sell even a hundred thousand copies? I just play again. Like I would highly recommend, I think one of the most underappreciated, this isn't an indie game, but one of the most underappreciated games of recent years is the trails games, trails in the sky, trails of cold steel. Yeah. That game has only sold 13,000 copies on Steam, so I wouldn't want those niche games to be rejected either. So what do you think the answer is? What's the solution to the problem? My answer, personally, one of the reasons a lot of devs you want to use Steam at this point, even though they know they're going to get buried, is because it's basically a store. It's a, basically it's a behind-the-scenes infrastructure that manages the stores, it manages the sales, it manages licensing rights, it manages all of that stuff. So my I, my solution is let them have that part. Just don't put them into the actual sorting or database or algorithm and let them give allow them to give people direct links to essentially what amounts to a private Steam page. So they can use Steam's backend to make distribution easier without cluttering up new releases and all the other stuff. That's a great idea. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. In fact, I'll give you a Hadouken for that. <laughs> well, listen, that's great. I think we just had a pretty good conversation on that. Thank you for calling in. Yep, thank you. Have a great day. All right. Anyone else have a take on any games? Am I crazy? Am I just jaded? Because I've been playing games so long and I cannot play another side scrolling platformer. Alright, we got another caller coming in here. Maybe they're gonna they're gonna give me the business. Alright, what's up? Welcome to THS. Are you there? It's connecting. There you are. Oh, alright, perfect. Um, one of the things you're trying to figure out is why people are doing this and um, I can tell you the amount of professionals that are graduating every day to to work in the gaming industry is growing at a really fast pace and one of the first things that you're told when you graduate is in order to get hired in a big company you need to work in a released game and there are so many tools right now that allow you to make games that look kind of professional like the one that you were just showing that a lot of people are going in that direction. They say, well, m maybe, maybe we're lucky, but if not, at least I'm going to have a release game that will maybe help me or increase my chances of getting into the industry. So a lot of the time it's not people hoping to, to win the lottery. It's just another step into getting started in that career that they're pursuing. You're right. 
I mean, if you talk to, say you meet someone at E3, a developer or a publisher, um, or you meet someone at PAX or whatever, and you ask them, you know, I want to develop games. What do I need to do? The first thing they're going to tell you is to make a game. Um, I don't know that publish a game is as important as just making one. And I think you're right. I think you've you've actually kind of figured out why Steam is so flooded with these indie games. It's because you're right. There's a lot of people who want to be developers who are being told you need to make a game or you're never going to get a job in the industry. And I think instead of them saying, okay, well, I can work on this student project and maybe I enter it into some indie competitions or whatever to build that resume, they think they need to go through the whole process of actually putting on a service for free. And I think that's why you're getting the flood of all these clones, so to speak. Am I wrong? Um, kind of, yeah. But no, you're right. Um, I just wanted to mention the other thing that, that I've noticed a lot uh, is um, most of the people that I've known from the industry, when they graduate, they have to make a final project. And you don't have enough time to actually build a game, but sometimes you get really good ideas. Uh, for instance, I remember right when I was about to graduate, this, uh, this group of guys made a puzzle game where you will rotate rooms. So the whole room will rotate in different directions. And it's an, it's an amazing concept, and the, the few levels that, I, that they make play great. But sometimes that will make you think that, well, if I keep working on this idea, I'll end up with a really good game. And you put a bunch of effort into it and time, and it turned out, well, it's not as great as you think it was going to be, but the product is already there. So Steam and the ability to put those projects out is just, you know, a, a, a how to say it, I, I agree they have to be a filter, but at the same time, it's just an opportunity that these people have to not throw away all that effort that they put that maybe it just doesn't end up with the quality that they hoped it was going to be. Do you, you think know? it's throwing away the work, though? I mean, does it have to if be If they don't release it, yes. If they don't release the game, if they don't put it out, if, if, they, if, if enough people don't get the chance to actually play the game or... um. It is kind of wasted because when when you are applying, if for instance, if, if you're if you graduate as a graph a, a game designer, um, not a lot of companies will hire somebody to to fill the idea role. You you are usually required to do more than just coming up with concept. Yeah, and no, this is nobody gets hired for ideas. It's not just it's yeah. not just game development either. I mean, that's just business in general. If you're an idea person. That's a huge bonus, and maybe you end up getting promoted faster than some other people, but no one ever gets a job because they say, I have the best ideas. That just doesn't happen. Exactly. And so re releasing that game, like I was saying before, is part of that requirement of, hey, not only I have good ideas about, you know, about games, this is what I can actually do. Do. And even though the product may not have the quality of a final product, it shows that you went through all the steps necessary to get that product out. And you know how to it, – it's kind of like going into an internship. It shows that you know at least how to work with a team to put the project together and to get it ready for the public to at least access the game and play it.
That's a really good point. But how does that help us as consumers? And how does that... That explains why the problem exists, but it, it doesn't mean that it's okay. I guess is the best way to put it. I agree 100% with you. Do you have any idea what the solution is? Because Xbox kind of did something that was kind of solving that. Because Xbox, obviously, Xbox Live sells indie games. But it also had kind of that Xbox incubator program. And if you really wanted to kind of go find those also-ran games where there's young people working on games that are like a lot of other games, you could go there and you knew what you were getting into. And Microsoft kind of fenced off Xbox Live from those games a little bit so that if you just wanted to find the really good stuff, there was that filter there. But you don't really get that with PSN or Steam. They're all just kind of tossed into the same pile. I I agree. But you know, there are so many things when evaluating a game. And just to give an example, one of the mistakes that I see a lot of people make when trying to define a game is it has to be fun. A game doesn't actually have to be fun. But it is, it is one element that people make to use to evaluate games. I can play a game and hate it. Some other people can, some other person can play it and love it. Right, it's we subjective, don't have an actual completely. way yeah. to to measure that without actual human input. So I don't think this can be solved without people playing the game and giving their their opinion or, or their reviews. Well, thank you for your call. It was really uh, insightful and interesting. It's good to get people who work behind the scenes developing games provide that perspective. And you did bring up a couple points that I would have never thought about on my own. So thank you. Oh, thank you for the chance. Yep. Have a great night. You too. All right, folks. We had some great conversations today. <laughs> this has been awesome. Uh, even better than I thought. Everything's been kind of better than I thought. The production of it and everything. I'm getting the hang of running the TriCaster while talking with everybody. Just have a couple more kinks to iron out. Like, for instance, my voice has a wicked delay on the headphones. I need to figure that out. Um, but I will. Uh, and that's why I keep taking them off and putting them on because I've, I've been speaking unnaturally when I have them on. So that's it. That's the first episode of today's high score. I want to thank all you guys for calling in. It's been amazing. Uh, you guys were the guinea pigs. You guys had the guts. But I think when people see this, they're going to realize they have nothing to worry about um, and that it's a respectful and fun conversation between people who love video games. So special thanks to everybody who uh, called in. Or called him with video. Let's try to get more people with video next time. Um, audio is fine, but it would be great if we could get more, more faces, obviously. Uh, expression goes a long way to, towards making a point. But thank you guys all so much for tuning in. Thanks for hanging out on the stream. And thanks to those of you who, just, who didn't even call and just wanted to watch the show. I appreciate it a lot. Everybody have a great night. We'll see you again tomorrow.